If you have a copy of God's Word, and I hope you do, let me invite you to grab your Bible and turn to the book of Proverbs. If you have a pew Bible, which should be in the seat in front of you or around you, it looks like this. You can find our text on page 494 this morning. I would recommend having a Bible open. I think that will serve you well. This morning, we are starting our summer series through the book of Proverbs. Now, if you're still searching, Proverbs is one of the wisdom literature, which we find with Psalms, Job, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. So if you're in your Bible, look for Psalms and then go to the right and you should be able to find it. So as our habit here, um, we like to stand out of honor for the reverence and reading of God's word. So let me invite you, once you have this text, to please stand with me. And together we will read Proverbs 1, 1 through 7. Now we read, we stand to read God's word to recognize that this word has the same power as if Christ Jesus was here himself, the same authority. And so we stand to give honor and reverence to it. Proverbs 1, starting in verse 1 of chapter 1 through verse 7. Hear the word of the Lord. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction. To understand words of insight. To receive instruction and wise dealings in righteousness, justice, in equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. This is God's word. Please be seated. So if I could be honest, I probably could divide many of you based upon your approach to the book of Proverbs. If you're a Christian, you probably have read Proverbs once or twice before. And just be honest with me for a second. Think for a second. What's your approach to Proverbs? Some of you guys love the book of Proverbs because it is very earthy, it is gritty, it is down to life. Some of you guys like to live your lives in a very principled manner, and so some of you are drawn to this section because you just love how it lays life out for you. There's, there's a verse here, there's a verse for this issue, there's a verse for that issue. Now others of you are probably looking at Proverbs and already you, you maybe feel overwhelmed. And some of us are drawn to the earthy, gritty, principled life, and some of us maybe take a step back. I was told a few weeks ago that I am a Proverbs type of man. I'm still trying to figure out whether or not that was a compliment or, or not. But some of you come to the book of Proverbs and it looks like you're just staring at a maze. You spend the first nine chapters, one through nine, and you're, and you're walking through really repetitive um, teaching just on a relationship between a father and a son, a father trying to plead with the son about wisdom. And then chapter 10 opens up and it's just this grab bag of sayings on everything from how you sleep to how you eat to how you do this to how you do that, how you talk to a king, how you use your words, how you quarrel. And you can sometimes feel overwhelmed. It's almost like a purgatory where you're, you're in a situation where you're just for eternity opening up fortune cookies and having to read it. And it feels like a very weird form of torture. But regardless of your approach to Proverbs, Proverbs has a very important message for us, and it, Proverbs addresses a topic that should be important to all of us, and that is the topic of wisdom. Because regardless of how you think about Proverbs, wisdom, if you're a Christian, should be a topic that is very important to you. One of the things I'm going to point your attention to in this study is that many times the New Testament authors call us to be people who are marked and defined by wisdom. If you go to Paul's letter in Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 15, Paul says, look carefully how you walk, 
not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because these days are evil. We're not going to go to it, but also in James chapter 3, and then going into verse 4, James can literally divide the entire Christian life with what type of wisdom you live by. Is that a wisdom from above, marked by peace, righteousness, holiness? Or is that a peace that's marked by earthly things, earthly carnal desires? That's in James chapter 3 if you want to look at that later. The book of Proverbs is very interested in this question. What does it mean to be wise? Also, what is wisdom? Now, for many of you, you probably know that you could think about knowledge in different ways. And this this sounds like a philosophy class for a second. I'm really sorry. But you can think about knowledge in different ways, and maybe you can catch the nuances here. Many times we can think about knowledge in an abstract sort of sense. These are all of your philosophers and metaphysics are the ones who look at you and say, what is truth? How do you know anything is true? And we think about, you know, knowledge, ideas, how do these things work together? I think everyone has a category for abstract knowledge. Then there's historical or observational knowledge. You know, you just are looking at the world and recording what's happening. No one debates that Napoleon was a person or rocks or planets or all these different things. And there's a third type of knowledge. That's practical knowledge. There's a type of knowledge that has a personal investment in it. Something about how you are living your life, which is very important. There's a knowledge that is aimed towards, are you living well? And I think if you're looking for a definition of wisdom, you could use this one. Wisdom is just the art of living well in God's word. Wisdom is the art of living well in God's word world. I think that all of us have some difference between just knowledge and wisdom. And some of you guys are even thinking about friends who have a lot of knowledge but aren't very wise, street smarts as we might say it. But if you were to take a moment and think about, okay, I want my friend, my daughter, my church member to be wise. How would you teach them? And we're, we're kind of introducing this topic, but you would you probably use a parable or a proverb. A proverb is merely just a phrase which communicates generally applicable truths about life. It's just a short phrase that summarizes life in a way that makes sense. And you probably live your life by proverbs. You don't even think about it. Let me see if I can say a few that you can fulfill fill the end for me. So if I was to say, two heads are better than... Never judge a book by its... Actions speak louder than... See, all of you guys are very wise, and I should just shut up and go home, and we're done. But anyways, Proverbs communicate things that are generally true, which is why this goes to their usefulness. And Proverbs have been used to preserve truth for generation after generation after generation. And so this is why Proverbs goes all the way back even to the nation of Israel, so in the, book, in the Bible, Proverbs are most commonly associated with King Solomon. Solomon is David's son, the second king of David's line. And Solomon has a problem. He is very young. And he has a lot of people he's trying to lead. And the Lord graciously comes to him and gives him an opportunity, a blank check of sorts. God says to Solomon, I will do whatever you ask. And Solomon asks for wisdom. And that's why Proverbs begins with a script that is assigned to Solomon. Look down at verse 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. See, the book of Proverbs is supposed to play a very important role within the life of God's people. Remember who Solomon is. 
He is a king. He has a very important job. Is he going to lead God's people well? Is he going to have a son who will lead God's people well? So for Solomon, he has a personal investment in wisdom. Who he appoints, who he gives power, what decisions he makes literally directs the future of the nation. So you have to keep in mind the book of Proverbs within the context of kings, kings of Israel. Because if the king is wise, the nation will do well. But if not, what happens? Now here's an interesting question. Who is the author of Proverbs? Now, if you were to look at verse one, you would say that Solomon is the one who's mostly assigned to it. Yes, that makes sense. And most of us know that all these Proverbs do come from Solomon. And even while most of the Proverbs do come from the hand of Solomon, the material comes from him, there is a sense in which that there is another hand that is guiding the process of the composition of this book. Let me invite you, in your bulletin, you should have seen an outline. I think this outline will help you well throughout the course of your study. And I think that you actually can break down the book of Proverbs, chapters 1 through 31, into seven sections. And you should have it. Can we get that slide? Yes, there you go. So if you don't have that, you can look back behind me. So if you were to do a brief summary just of the book, chapters 1 through 9 are this, is a section that goes through a father's instruction to a son. He revisits a lot of the same ideas, but that's basically what's happening. It is King Solomon writing to a son about wisdom. And then starting in chapter 10, it breaks open into this giant section, which you probably know most about. It's that grab bag where he's talking about everything from, you know, money to politics to nagging wives and everyone's special proverbs and favorite ones. Starting in chapter 22, verse 17, there's this new section to clear break into the sayings of the wise. We're not exactly sure who they are, but there's this section that's designated to the wise. And here's where we have to start to ask the question, who's the author? Because Hezekiah shows up. Hezekiah was one of David's future sons who was king over Israel, way past Solomon. But it says in chapter 25 that Hezekiah's men collected these proverbs and put them together. And here's where things get pretty fascinating. Starting in chapter 30, we actually don't know who these guys are. So chapter 30 is the sayings of Augur, and that name is actually a Semitic name, which means that Augur most likely is someone who is not from the nation of Israel. We don't really know who he is. And based upon his name, he may, he may have even have been an Arab, a pagan convert to Judaism. And then there is the, the sayings of King Lemuel, or more commonly known, King Lemuel's mom just railing into him about being a good king. But we also don't know who King King Lemuel is. He is most likely not a king of Israel. He also could have been a foreign king that his wisdom comes in here. And then everyone's favorite ending, The Virtuous Woman, chapter 7. But I just bring your attention to this, that while Solomon probably provided most of the content of the book, there is another hand that is grabbing all these pieces and that they're putting them together. And while Solomon has much to say to us at various points, as we take a step back and we see through this whole sermon series, there's another hand and he has another message that he wants to say to us throughout our study. So if you want to think about Proverbs, at minimum, it had to be in the time of Hezekiah's men gathering gathering all these Proverbs together 
Or even it was after the exile when all these people came back, and then that's when the book of Proverbs have, has its final form. Now I want to make one introductory comment. I'm doing a little more introduction because I'm kicking off a sermon series, so you have to stay with this for a little more, but I hope that these comments are helpful. So here's, I need to make a comment about how we're going to approach this book, because this book is particularly tricky. <laughs> just from how it is written out. There is not a clear line of argumentation like a letter. There is not a narrative that I am, I am following from you know, Abraham to Joseph. And really starting in chapter nine, you have all these sayings from money, relationships, eating with a king, how much sleep you have, justice, politics, words. I mean, it's, just, it's literally, you could spend hours in here. So just, I'm just cueing you in. This sermon series may feel a little bit different than ones that we've done in the past. Uh, this is going to be an expositional sermon, but what I'm going to try and do is I'm going to try and provide a comprehensive framework for the book in 11 weeks that I think will aid you in your personal study. We could spend hours here just chasing all the different truths, and in the future we probably will come back to various points of Proverbs. But my goal is to try to take a step back from the trees and look at the forest and try and look at what the argument is that's running through it. That just being said, even if you look at chapters one through nine, the author repeats himself over and over again, coming back to the same idea. And so instead of stopping each time ask the same questions, we're going to take these pictures in themes and we're going to look through the book and see what the author has to say to us. I also think I have some warrant for this. Look down at verse 6 of Proverbs chapter 1. Towards the end, he makes the comment that he's making a comment to the wise, and he says, to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. That word riddle can also be translated hard sayings. Now, just to be said, if you're, if you're walking through this line by line and never stop and ask the question, what does this all mean? You may miss what the author is wanting to say to you. So here's where we're going. Flip to the back of your page, and I actually have for you a tentative schedule of the sermons that we're going to be walking through. So this morning, we're kicking off the book, Proverbs 1, 1 through 7, and then we're actually going to spend five weeks in that section, Proverbs 1 through 9. This is important for you. I'll tell you in a moment. And then we're going to send four sermons. I'm going to draw out various components of that main chunk, Proverbs 10 through 29. And then we're going to end with the final conclusion of wrapping it all up together. If you want to get the most out of this sermon series, here's what I think would help you the most. What I'm going to challenge you guys to do, if you want to get the most of it, you don't have to, but each week in between the next five sermons, I want to challenge you to read through Proverbs 1 through 9. Okay? And, and I provided an outline for you here of what I think is a, a clear way to walk through it. So use the outline, read through it, and then I'm going to come back. And what I'm going to try and do is I'm going to try and add a different component, a different piece to the puzzle that hopefully will deepen your understanding of this text. So that's where we're going. That's my long-winded introduction. But I, I hope that this sheet will aid you well. And I have a digital copy as well. Feel free to message me if you have any comments or questions. So that's how I introduce the book of Proverbs. Let's see how Solomon does it himself. If you look down at verse 1, chapter 1, you see the, the, the introduction or the title, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. Now, I've introduced the book to you, but the author himself has to introduce the book. And so here's how he does it. He makes a transition from this title, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, and then he walks into these infinitives, to know, to receive, to give. 
And so it's not proper grammar, and it's intentional. Because what the author is trying to do is that the author is trying to make you ask a question. What's the relationship between these? So the Proverbs of Solomon, to know. The Proverbs of Solomon, to receive. The Proverbs of Solomon, to give. What's going on here? And what the author is trying to do, he's trying to have you fit a word in there. Why was the Proverbs of Solomon written? The Proverbs of Solomon were written in order to, for you to know. You see the, the purpose there? The Proverbs of Solomon, in order for you to know, in order for you to receive, in order for you to give. Why is the author doing this? Because he wants you to understand the nature and the scope of wisdom. He's leaving a word out there so that you put in your mind, why, why is he writing this book? What's the purpose behind it? So that I may know, I may receive. So the first point of the sermon for you, if you're, you're using the thing and using the notes there, write down, I think the first point of the sermon is the, no, the nature and scope of wisdom. Within the first six verses, we see the nature and scope of wisdom. What the author's trying to do here is he's trying to give us a picture. All right, if you want to be wise, if you want to understand Proverbs, where are we going? What is the nature of wisdom? And then what does wisdom expand to? And most of the heavy lifting in this passage is actually found in verse 2. Look down at verse 2. He uses these two words, wisdom and instruction. And if you go down to verse 7, he repeats those two words at the end, wisdom and instruction. Those two words do most of the heavy lifting in this passage. And they, this, these two words together communicate two complementary ideas that help us in our pursuit of wisdom. Let's look at that first one. The word wisdom comes from the Hebrew word chokmah. Chokmah. And again, it's repeated at verse 7. This word shows up in Scripture many times within the context of skill, mastery, and when it appears within the context of art, government, diplomacy, when someone demonstrates excellent skill in, in craft, in, in their job, in their relationships, they are demonstrating wisdom. They are demonstrating chokmah. Now, chokmah has a very important origin. Where does chokmah come from? And from this, we get a clue later in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 19. Hear what Solomon says. The Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. So I'm, I'm trying to give you guys different concepts here. Chokmah is a picture of mastery, of accomplishment, of skill, so anytime that I see someone who is masterful in their job, masterful in relationships, they're demonstrating chokmah. But Proverbs 3 tells us that chokmah also appears within the fabric of creation. When God made the world, he embedded into the world wisdom. I think all of us recognize this truth in one way or another. There is a flow. There is a grain of life. You know, you can't walk up a river. Why is it easier to chop down a tree? Why is it easier to split a, a log versus to chop down a tree? You're working with the grain of how things go. And if we look at all of life, God has embedded into this world chokmah, wisdom. And every time that we find these 
curves or these avenues, we actually are bearing witness to the goodness of our creator. There is a grain to everything. There is wisdom for us to find and understand. And this is why general revelation and natural theology are truly friends of God's people. By general revelation, we mean that we can know truths about God that have been revealed in the world to us. The heavens declare the glory of God, the psalmist says. We can look into the world and we see truth that God has embedded into the fabric of creation. Also, natural theology. It's just taking all these things that we learn about God and pointing them together and giving glory to God. Friends, as for our point of application, the world is our friend. Because the same God who speaks to us in his word is the same God who created the world around us. They have one source. So as we come to God's word and as we become wise, we should see more than anyone else the wisdom and the beauty and the art that's within the world around us. And then whenever we find these grooves, we're giving glory to God. So the job of the Christian, in one sense, using this word, is for us to find the wisdom, the wisdom in the world, to make it our own, so that the chokmah the world becomes our own, where we show our own mastery of the things that God has given to us. Let me give you an example. There's a reason why marriage works. Marriage is God's wisdom for men and women in relationships. Whenever a married couple experiences the blessings of marriage versus an unmarried couple, it shows, it gives glory to chokmah, into wisdom. When relationships work with forgiveness and grace and love, they just work better because God created it to work this way. Instead of relationships being ruled by jealousy and pride and malice, this is the way that God created the world to work. Whenever we watch our tongues, whenever we walk in humility, whenever we serve one another, we are aligning ourselves with God's creative intentions, and we are finding wisdom. Let's go to the second word, instruction. To know instruction. Now this word also is, the, the, the context behind this word and the meaning of it is pretty significant. It, it's the word that communicates the idea of self-discipline or even submission to authorities. This word appears again in verse three, instruction, to receive instruction, and then again in verse seven. Now, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Bible, this word can also be translated or has been translated as pedion. And you can even hear the word pediatrics in there, child. What is this word? How has this word been understood? This word is pointing to discipline, training up a child, being trained in skill, growing. And even that same word from the Septuagint would show up in 2 Timothy 3.16 where Paul talks about scripture as training us in righteousness. So the word for instruction points to discipline, teaching, straining, submission to authorities. So what does this tell us about wisdom? Wisdom comes through discipline. Wisdom, knowledge, instruction comes through straining. The path of wisdom is the path of discipline. Wisdom is the reward of hard work. There are no escalators or lazy rivers on the way to being wise. Now these two words, wisdom and instruction, they do most of the heavy lifting in this passage and these ideas are communicated in different ways. 
Let me expand our definition of wisdom from earlier. What is wisdom? Taking these ideas now. I think wisdom is the art or skill of living well in God's world, which is earned through straining and disciplined work. What is wisdom? The skill and art of living well in God's world, which is earned through straining and disciplined work. Let me ask you a question, Christian. Does this type of approach reflect your attitude towards the Christian life? As we go to the New Testament, as we think about the ideas of sanctification, even going back to Ephesians 5 and wisdom, does your approach to the Christian life reflect this straining, this striving, this discerning God's wisdom within the world? Does your life look like chokmah, which is masterful skill, understanding of Scripture, of theology, of sin's tactics, of relationships with other people? Now, I, I, maybe some of you are like, mastery? You know who I am? But at the same time, think about your trajectory. Where are you going in the Christian life? Does your life have as its goal growing in wisdom, growing in discipline, growing in mastery of the things of God? Look back at verse 2 with me. You see that word to know? You know that word probably from other places. That's the word yada. Knowing, an intimate form of knowing is how it's in other places. This same word can talk about the union of a man and his woman. Adam knew his wife. So what, what does this show us? That the type of knowledge here, the wisdom and the instruction should be something that is intimately known by God's people. And even next week, we'll see that you can even say that wisdom is like an intimate companion or lady wisdom, as we'll see next week. Consider also just the scope of wisdom. In verses 3 and 4, he sets two infinitives in contrast. Verse 3 talks about receiving wisdom, instruction. Verse 4 talks about giving prudence, giving wisdom, and giving instruction. And verse 3 talks about and nuances different aspects of instruction. In wise dealings and prudence. In righteousness. Now this word should make your ears pop up. This is the same word righteousness. Which reflects God's righteous character. And righteous law. And so if we want to grow in instruction, what are we growing in? Growing, what, growing in what God decrees as right. Wisdom is submitted to God's law and God's righteousness. The next word, justice, it's the same word that we get the office of judge in the Old Testament. Think about the judges of Israel giving pronouncements, discerning issues, giving sentences. They are judging. They are giving justice. And the last one, equity. What is right? What is fair? What is straight? Christian, let me ask you, as you think about your life, do these things reflect your approach to the Christian life? Verse 4, I already made the comment, puts us on the giving end to give prudence to the simple. 
knowledge, and discretion to the youth. Now this, this verse points us to the fact that all of us should be aiming for the days where we're not just getting, but we're also giving, right? All of us at a matter of time are going to be the ones who are on the giving end of wisdom, even if you're young. It doesn't take long. So are you living your life with a posture to be not only a disciple, but a discipler? Do you know wisdom and then give wisdom? Because even if you don't think about yourself needing to be wise, I hope you do. What about those around you? What about your children? What about coworkers and friends? Friends, doesn't our generation need wisdom? So are you aiming to invest in the next generation? If not, why not? And then verses five through six point us to something of the duration or how long we should pursuing wisdom. <laughs> Let the wise hear and increase in learning. The one who understands obtain guidance to understand the proverb in the saying. Wait a minute, so, so what happens once I'm wise? Great, <laughs> keep going. Don't ever stop. The wise never get to a point where it's like, you know, I'm in a pretty cool spot. I can just camp right here. I'm, I, you know, I'm better than my friends. I'm the wisest person on my block. No, keep going. Solomon was the wisest man in the world, right? How'd he end? Friends, the path of wisdom is a lifelong commitment to strive to go after wisdom in God's world. So let me just take a second to reflect on some different questions here for you to think about. Maybe you can write these down. Christian, does your life reflect the habits and disciplines of wisdom? Do you live your life seeking excellence and godliness, your knowledge of Scripture? Do you embrace the discipline necessary to make choices into habits and then habits into character? Do you see the scope of wisdom in, in righteousness, in justice, in equity? Do you understand your responsibility one day or another to then instruct the next generation? And then do you feel that drive? Never stop. Keep going. There's more wisdom. Get more. Now, at this point, maybe some of you feel overwhelmed. Ah! Ah, what a, I mean, what a challenge. If you were just to take the first six verses, like, man, that's a lot. <laughs> Yay, Proverbs. Where should we start? All right, so I've laid out for you the scope and nature of wisdom. What's the best way to tackle this? What's the best way to eat this elephant, so to say? Where, are we, where should we begin? I mean, if I'm supposed to be wise in instruction and all these different things, where do we start? Hopeful, helpfully, the author helps us. Look down to verse 7. Where do you start? The fear of the Lord. It's the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and destruction. So if I want to live my life defined by wisdom and knowledge, where do I start? Fear of the Lord. That's your second point. The beginning of wisdom. Where do you start? Fear the Lord. Now, this is an interesting place to start for many reasons. But we were just talking about righteousness and relationships with people and friends and discipline, all these different things. And now we're talking about fearing the Lord. It does feel a bit like a category shift. 
unless you realize an important spiritual principle. Everything in your life horizontally flows out of your life vertically. So it is appropriate that as he's talking about righteousness, wisdom, knowledge, teaching, all of that is going to come back from your relationship with God, which Proverbs says should be marked by fear. And there's an inverse way that you can work at this. So if I'm not in a right relationship with God, if my relationship with God is not defined by fear, as he says it, and we'll get to that in a second, then I shouldn't expect myself to have wisdom in my relationships with others, right? In my relationship with my kids, my relationship with my coworkers, my instruction's gonna be off. My discernment's gonna be off. But then the inverse is true as well. If I look at someone and they're struggling in a lot of their horizontal relationships, what do you think I can assume about their vertical one? And here's the second reason why I think that this kind of strikes us as wrong or kind of off. We don't really like the idea of fear. Now, if you think back to some of the worst times in your life, they probably were times when you were afraid. Fear has quite the way of imprinting memories into our minds. Fear is a powerful emotion, right? We don't like fear. And now I'm fearing the Lord? What does that mean? Here's another important principle that I think will help us through Proverbs. Our emotions speak. Our emotions communicate. Our emotions are whole-bodied responses to the world around us. So when I am in fear, I am in my whole body communicating something. All of our other emotions do that, but fear in particular. And I think that fear is really tied to the idea of power. Why do I fear something? Because something I have, I think, has perceived power to either harm me or something that I love. Why do people fear COVID, guys? Because we can't find it, we can't track it, and everyone's saying all these different things is gonna do, and so I am scared of it because of the perceived harm. I know you understand this reality. You know, if I was driving with you and a police officer came speeding by you, and now, anytime an IRS letter shows up in the mail, I don't want to be off the grid. I don't want them talking to me. Why? Because there is perceived power. This can do something to me, right? Either IRS or if a lion walks through this room right there, I think all of you guys would act differently because of the perceived power there. How does this relate to God and the fear of the Lord? Essentially, to fear the Lord is to live your life with a constant recognition of God's power and presence in your life. To fear the Lord is to live your life with a recognition of the gravitas of God's nature and character. It's to live your life constantly in view of everything that we believe about God, but sometimes don't always put into practice or take out of our theology books. As if you think about it, every sin in one way or another is a denial of God's character. Is God all-powerful? Yes. Is God ever-present? Yeah. Does God know us at a heart level? Will God discipline us when we sin? Yeah, right? So then why do you click on the links that you do? 
Why do you think that you can get away with slander or gossip? Do you not think God sees your bitterness or your jealousy of that person next to you? Because many times we have these great categories and we love to have our doctrinal statements, but how does that translate into real life? Sin is incompatible with the fear of the Lord. If I constantly lived my life with a recognition of who God is in his power, in his sufficiency, and in his nature, why would I turn to created things? Proverbs 16, 6. By the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. Christians of old had a saying for this, living quorum Deo, living your life in the presence of God, with you, for you, wherever you go. Because if you were to truly embrace who God is and his power, if you were to truly fear the Lord day by day, moment by moment, friend, do you not think you'd walk in wisdom? Right? Let me give you three reasons for why I think you should fear the Lord. Three reasons for why you should fear the Lord. The first reason, I think you should fear the Lord because of God's nature. Because of God's nature. Friends, take a moment and think about it. Who is this God that we believe? We just professed him. Holy, holy, holy. In power, mercy, might. Friends, remember this God right now is veiled. Right? Just go to Exodus. Moses needed to be hidden in a rock by God's passing power. Friends, we do not see God as he is. If he did, if we did, we would die. Do we have a gravitas, a, a, just a marked presence and power of who God is? Do we feel that in our being? If every time you go into scripture, someone sees God, uh, sees an angel, and they just pass out. It just lights out, right? That's just an angel. Guys, what about, what about God? Let's think about these doctrines we talk a lot about. God is infinite without beginning or end. Friends, God is perfectly holy without any moral imperfection or impurity. He is perfect in power. He knows all things. He can do all things. Friends, do you not think if you were to meditate upon this more that you would walk in more wisdom? Friends, fear the Lord. Let's think about these verses for a second. Proverbs 5.21. For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all of his paths. Think about this for a moment. Why do we not, why do we so often act different in public than in private? Is it not sufficient for us to know that God sees us at a heart level in both of those circumstances? Why do we so often struggle with the fear of man rather than the fear of God? Does it not strike us that God watches over everything that we do? Proverbs 21, 2. Every way of man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. You know what that means? You're your worst enemy and your first justification. Ah, it's fine. The Lord weighs the heart. And then let's go to the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 
For we all must appear before the judgment seat so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Friends, one day you will stand before the judgment seat and that omnipotence and omniscience will then walk through your life everything you've done. Friends, is there not gravity? Does your theology truly transfer into real life? Does this God that you proclaim and profess and read about translate into his active presence with you every day? I think if you did, you'd walk in wisdom. Point number two, because of your sin. Why should we fear the Lord? Because of your sin. It's interesting to think about that if we never sinned, we would still fear the Lord. In the sense that we would always be marked by God's authority and power in our life. It wouldn't be something that's against us, but something that's for us. Even if you think about it further, if Adam truly feared the Lord, he never would have sinned. Because when the serpent walked up and was like, hey, you're going to disobey God? A lack of fear of the Lord kept Adam from sinning, I would propose. And if we lived in a world without sin, we'd still fear the Lord, but friend, because of sin, we have a problem. God's moral law requires perfection. Any degree of nonconformity, any variance, is worthy of condemnation because of God's infinite glory. And friends, because of our sin, all of those infinite things are directed against us and against you. Proverbs 6. Let's read through this list real quick. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who swords discords, discord among brothers. All right, let's just start small. Let me ask you, have you ever lied? Congratulations, you've committed what God calls an abomination. Because God's truthfulness and holiness defends integrity in what is true. Friends, because of God's nature, we should fear the Lord. Because of our sin, we should fear the Lord. What usually happens when we sin? Remember, guys, sin makes us stupid. Because we look at sin and we look at God's law. We look at all that God says about who he is, what he requires of us, and we look and we're like, it doesn't really matter that I'm sleeping with my girlfriend. It doesn't really matter that I don't love my neighbor. Eh. Every time that we sin, guys, we don't recognize it, but sin requires an active suppression of God's presence in that moment. You know? The guy who looks at porn while his wife is sleeping does not fear the Lord. The man who cuts corners in his business and bills does not fear the Lord. The gossiper does not fear the Lord. Many of you guys know Paul's description of sin in Romans 3. Let me keep your ear out for something that you may not have noticed. Romans 3, this is Paul bringing his condemnation against all of humanity. 
None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Nothing. One of the worst situations to be in, you're trying to counsel someone who's been caught in sin. Not repentant, caught. Because they're sorrowful. I mean, think about the guy who's cheated on his wife, or even worse, someone who's committed a crime, someone who's done something with a child, right? And you're sitting in that counseling session, and they're sorrowful because their job's gone, their reputation's gone. All these things are gone, but it's always about how it's going to impact me, right? And then you go and you just look in there for all, everything being pulled back. Look into their eyes, you know what's missing? The fear of the Lord. No fear. No recognition of God's holiness. Friends, fear the Lord. Fear the Lord because you are a sinner. And the fear of the Lord is your best weapon against sin in the beginning of wisdom. Fear the Lord because it is the beginning of wisdom. Walk in a constant recognition of God's power and presence in your life. And use it to fight against the fear Use it to fight against the role and place of sin in your life. Proverbs 28, 14 says, Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. So I think there are two pretty good reasons for why you should fear the Lord. Fear the Lord because of God's nature. Fear the Lord because of your sin. But I want to give you one last one. And for this, this may feel like a bit of a jump, but go with me. Flip, Flip over to the Gospel of Luke. Gospel of Luke. Luke 39. No, Luke 23, 39. We're dropping right smack dab into the middle of Jesus' crucifixion. He's been arrested. He's been tried in a kangaroo court. And literally, he's feeling life fleeing his body as he's been impaled to a piece of wood, left to die like an animal in a trap. And then an interesting conversation breaks out because Jesus is not left alone. He has two Criminals at their side. And here what happens. Luke 24, 39. One of the criminals who was hanging, ra- hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Now when you're crucified, remember that breathing is a very difficult process. So the people out there are free to, you know, hurl insults at Jesus. But this man has the audacity to, you know, I'll take some more pain and then he lifts himself up to, to cast a ridicule at the man who's on the other side of the cross next to him. Now, I'm going to breathe to get in on the fun. Are you at the Christ? Save yourself. But here it comes blasting across the other side of the mountain. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God? Do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. You see, these two men have two very different sets of concerns right now. 
One feels free to toss a ridicule. What's going on in the other man's mind? Think about it. This dude has messed up. What is execution but just hastening a criminal's trip to the final judgment? You think about it. He's saying here, and as the nails are in his hands, and as he's thinking about his life and what he's done, he's thinking, if this is what man can do to me, what's waiting for me on the other side? What can God do to me? Do you not fear God? We are condemned. I think this is a picture of the fear of the Lord. He is reckoning with the reality of his sin. He is reaping the reward of his foolishness. He is facing God's character and holiness and what's coming. And in this last minute, he is looking for a way out. He is looking for a savior. And guess who happens to be right next to him? You take a moment, you probably just wonder what he knew about Jesus. Now, Jesus knew a lot about him. <laughs> He, he doesn't try to hide it. I'm guilty. I deserve this. I deserve to die because of my foolishness. But this man was innocent. He knew something of his claims to be a king. He knew something of the promises that are coming. And in complete and humiliation, he casts himself upon Jesus. Verse 42, and he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus, one day when you come back or when you fulfilled the promises of Israel, remember me. And that man got more than he could have ever have asked for. Verse 43. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Friend, where does the fear of the Lord lead this man? Where does the fear of the Lord lead us? Friends, the fear of the Lord leads to Jesus. Maybe you've never thought about this, but in this regard, fear is your best friend because fear helps you to recognize truly who God is. And fear helps us to recognize who we are. And we're going to spend a lot of time talking about trying to be wise because we have a responsibility to do that. But friend, hear me out. You are not wise enough to save yourself. So if when you properly look at who God is in his word and you look at what God's word reveals about you, the fear of the Lord is very helpful because it recognizes I need help, I need a savior. Friends, the wisest decision that you can make in life has nothing to do with how smart you are, how accomplished you are, how much you find these natural grooves ultimately, they're important not ultimately, but the wisest decision that you can make in your life is how you respond to Jesus. See his claim. See what he said about himself. For maybe you're wrestling right now with wise, not wise decisions you've made. Maybe you're reaping the consequences of sin in your own past. Friend, just like this man crucified, there is hope and salvation for you if you come to Jesus. If you're a Christian here, do you fear the Lord? Do you fear Jesus it may sound like an interesting question because we talk about loving Jesus and he always is holding a lamb and all these different things. So Jesus tends to be very cute. Sometimes we feel bad for him because no one wants to be his friend as we try to talk to people. But we should fear Jesus because like we read earlier, 
every person in this room will one day stand before Jesus and receive a judgment on what you have done with your life. Friend, this is not for salvation, but you do have a stewardship. You have a responsibility. Our salvation is secure, but you should have a gravity, a soberness about when you're going to face Jesus. And the fear of the Lord, the fear of Jesus, is one of the main motivations of sanctification in the Christian life. Let me quickly draw you to two final verses as we come to a close. 2 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11. We read this earlier. So whether we are home and our way, we make it our aim to please him. Every Christian should be defined by a desire to please Christ. For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing what? Fear the Lord. We persuade others. Fear the Lord, correctly tied to pleasing God, judgment seat. Friends, we fear Christ as we follow our King. You could all say that the fear of the Lord is not the beginning of wisdom, but also our sanctification as we submit our lives to the will of our King. 2 Corinthians 7.1. This is later in the letter. He says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. Fear of God. Maybe you're confused, like, wait, I don't think we have anything to fear anymore. Jesus has done all these things, right? Yeah, Jesus has conquered death. We don't fear death at all, but it's the fear of Christ taking his yoke upon us that brings us home. The fear of Christ with love, hope, all these things brings the Christian home. So Christian, pursue wisdom through using your knowledge of and fear of that great day to strive for holiness every day so that when you give an account one day, you will not be marked by foolishness. One final thought. There's a really interesting thing about the fear of the Lord, because usually what I fear makes me want to run away. So if I see a lion, I run. If I see a bear, I run. When I fear the Lord, where can I go? Can I run from him? No. What's my only option? Run to him. Cast myself upon the Lord for his mercy and grace. Friends, maybe one of you needs to do that today. Psalm 2. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would help us to fear you. Father, we often live our lives without a practical gravity and soberness to the fact that you are always with us. And Father, we turn from you, we deny who you are so often. And yet we know that the fear of you is the beginning of wisdom, the fear of you is the beginning of life. Father, ask for those who may be convicted by a lack of respecting your gravity in their lives. Father, may they find mercy and forgiveness at, at the cross. 
Father, I pray for all of us. May we live lives defined by wisdom so that one day when we stand before you, we will give glory to you for all that you've done for us. We pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.